From ESPN, you're listening to 30 for 30 Podcasts. My name is Jody Avergan. This episode, a story of scandal from South American soccer. When you talk about soccer in Latin America, you very likely think about Brazil. Perpetual World Cup qualifier, five-time World Cup champion. But this is a story about another team, a team trying to take down Brazil. And it's about a series of escalating acts that look to upend the power structure throughout World Cup soccer. We call it The Fall of the Condor. It's a story we reported with help from the Spanish-language show Radio Ambulante. Our version is hosted by me. Hay un poquito de español en este. And it starts right now. Welcome to Santiago, a typically South American scene. Brazil have just come onto the pitch. You can hardly see them. Well, you can now because the television camera has forged a way through. They've been surrounded by photographers. That's the way it always is wherever Brazil play, especially when it's a World Cup qualifier. It's mid-August, 1989, Santiago, Chile. Brazil and Chile are facing off for a spot in the World Cup to be held in Italy the next summer. This would be the first of two matches, one in Chile and the second in Brazil. And if Chile could win here, they could go on to make World Cup history by becoming the first country to stop Brazil reaching the finals. Brazil still remain unbeaten in World Cup qualifying games. That's an extraordinary record. The stadium, the national stadium was crowded, full. Luciano Borges is a Brazilian journalist who was in the stadium in Santiago that day. The environment of uh, tension, uh, this is going to be a war, things like that. Under the grandstands, in the tunnel leading out to the field, both teams were lined up side by side. At the front of the Chilean team was their captain, Roberto Rojas. Rojas was probably, at that time, the greatest uh, soccer idol and the most famous player in Chile. Everyone knew about Roberto Rojas. He was the captain of the team. He was known as El Condor. El Condor, the condor. With his strong nose and straight black hair, he even kind of looked like the enormous bird that he'd gotten his nickname from. Keeping them out, Roberto Rojas is the Chilean goalkeeper and their captain. He was an idol. He was the best Chilean football player, really a popular hero in that time in Chile. Daniel Matamala is an anchor with CNN Chile and has written a number of books about Chilean sports and culture. He has an incredible presence. His capacity to to not jump, to really fly, made him look like a giant. It looks like it's impossible to beat him. At this moment, the Chilean soccer team, led by Rojas doing the impossible, was everything. It was a very special moment in Chilean history. The country was at a time of transition. The Pinochet dictatorship was ending. General elections were set for that winter. Chile was figuring out what kind of nation it would be. And of course, in Latin America, soccer uh, is very associated to nationalism. And Chilean fans threw themselves behind their soccer team and the World Cup campaign. An entire society that think it was a matter of national honor to win a soccer game. And they had reason to be hopeful. Chilean fans were confident because two years earlier, uh, Chile crushed Brazil 4-0 in the Copa America, and it was uh, almost the same players. 
but there's just a feeling amongst the Chilean fans that their side might have a little bit more know-how than this exciting young Brazil side. But also it was the feeling that everything was rich to favor Brazil. Many Chileans felt that FIFA, whose president happened to be Brazilian, was in the tank for the perennial favorites. So there was this mix of hope, determination, and conspiracy. There, there was a, a sense that uh, some uh, dark powers were acting to favor Brazil. Not that Brazil needed much help. I mean, Brazil is Brazil, and Brazil is always in the World Cup. Daniel Alarcón is the host of the podcast Radio Ambulante. He covers Latin American culture and sports and has reported on those matches between Brazil and Chile. The Chilean team trying to qualify for the 1990 World Cup was sure that this was the year they could pull off the shocking upset. It is it is kind of crazy to think that you could beat Brazil and eliminate them from the World Cup. And Chileans felt that goalkeeper Rojas was the type of person to help pull it off. Quite frankly, goalkeepers are insane. A good goalkeeper has a certain amount of, of disregard for his or her own safety. I mean, they live on the edge, you know. Local time just before 5 o'clock. The capacity of the stadium, 85,000. And the temperature in the region of 30 degrees centigrade. For matches like the one in Santiago, there was a FIFA rule in place to try and lower the tension. The teams would gather in the tunnel side by side and then would be required to walk out onto the field at the same time. And there's a, a, a logic to this. The logic is that this way, the fans, if they're going to attack, they can't attack the opposing team without hitting their own players. So the idea is that the teams come out together so that they'll, they'll be safe. At this match, however, that didn't happen. Because the Chilean captain, Roberto Rojas, made a move right as the teams were waiting in the tunnel to take the field. He rushed his team out. He let his team out first, without waiting for the Brazilian team. Roberto Rojas is the Chilean goalkeeper and their captain. So they leave the tunnel, go out onto the pitch, the Brazilians aren't ready, and that has an immediate impact, which is that when the Brazilians walk out, they're on their own, they're vulnerable. Brazil have just come onto the pitch. You can hardly see them. Well, you Rojas walked away from the Brazilians, rallied his own team, and riled up the fans. Violation of all protocol. It's of a piece with the culture of win at all costs. We're here to win. I don't know what you came here for, you know? And I'm not, I'm not your friend. That's the way it always is, especially when it's a World Cup qualifier. The tone was set. The incident in the tunnel started it, and things only escalated from there. There was a fight between two players before the game even kicked off. This is brutal. This is violent. This is dirty. This is stop-start. You know, we're not talking about Jogo Bonito, where they look like they're all, everyone looks like they're dancing, you know? We're talking about really hard-nosed, rough soccer. During this period in Latin American soccer, there was this idea that a match was won by playing hard-nosed, rough football on the field, but also won outside of it as well even more so when you're talking about the national teams. Chilean journalist Danilo Diaz covered this era and knows all the stories. For instance, the Copa America in 1979, when Chile played Colombia. The Colombian national team has come to Chile, and uh, someone sends to their hotel a bunch of prostitutes. To the Colombian team. To the Colombian team's hotel, exactly. And they take pictures. 
right, of the Colombian team partying and the Colombian team sort of with these women. And then when the Colombian team comes out to the stadium, onto the pitch, there's these giant banners with these photographs of them. You know, partying with women who are not their wives. There's no evidence of these photos, but there's the story. And Chile won, Colombia lost. And there are more stories like this throughout Latin American soccer. In a game in Paraguay in the late 80s, it was the Chileans who were on the receiving end. On the way to the, the stadium, everyone on the, on the bus starts feeling really drowsy, like really drowsy. And it turns out someone had put sleeping pills in their, in their food. So the team, you know, is, is a bunch of zombies. Chile lost that one. In 1978, Argentina hosted the World Cup. Argentina 78. The country was under a military dictatorship at the time, and rumors were swirling about whether their match against Peru was on the level. I've heard testimonies that, you know, Argentine soldiers came into the dressing room armed to the teeth, uh, supposedly to protect the Peruvian players, but also to intimidate them. Um, and, you know, for, for whatever happened, certainly on the pitch, the Peruvian team looked, looked pretty lost. Perhaps most famously, there's the ties between Colombian soccer and drug gangs. In 89, for example, um, the, the Colombian league suspended a season um, because a referee was murdered. And this was all sort of in the time of the Narcos. Drug, drug dealers were owned teams, you know, and were, were buying players and were buying refs. And then there's the one about the dog. This is one of my favorites. The story goes that a, that a team from Santiago was playing away, uh, very high in the mountains. The game was tied, and if the Santiago players could just hold on, they would secure the draw and get a point in the title race. There's about five minutes left, and the, the coach, the manager, has a little duffel bag by the side of the bench. And in this duffel bag is a little peppy, quick little dog. And so when he sees that the, the, the time is right, he opens the duffel bag and lets the dog free. And the next five, six minutes of the game are spent, you know, with everyone chasing the dog. who No, no one can catch the dog. And, uh, and that way he runs out the clock and they get the point. When you hear a story like that, I mean, you used the word corruption earlier. Does this count as corruption? Does this count as cheating? God, I mean, that's a huge question in football. So there's, this, there's a saying, um, football is para los vivos. It's been mistranslated as football is for the living. It's actually in, in, in Peruvian Spanish, el vivo is, is that person who's alert, who's quick, who's um, quick thinking, you know? And that's, that, you know, and that's, that's true. Soccer is for the person who's, who can think on their feet, like both literally and, and metaphorically. Now the dog, like letting a dog free onto the pitch really sort of crosses the line. But I, I grew up with a healthy respect for, for el vivo, you know, and for gamesmanship. And I think in Latin America in general, we have this, this acceptance that that's part of the game. Chilean soccer, at every level, was no exception. Reporter Danilo Diaz saw his country's football culture reach a point where they were going to be más bandidos que los bandidos. More bandits than the bandits. And El Condor, Roberto Rojas, was in the thick of it all. He was caught up in a fake passport scandal. He'd gotten in fights with coaches. He'd been caught doping. Basically, every scandal involved Rojas in one way or another. He was always a player who pushed the limits.
And if Chile could win here, they could go on to make World Cup history by becoming the first country to stop Brazil. Push the limits is exactly what Rojas had done by taking his team out of the tunnel before the match with Brazil in Santiago. But Rojas wasn't going rogue. He knew his team would follow his lead. He was Chile's captain. After the opening whistle, the chaos continued. And we've very nearly got a riot here. A red card has been shown. Mario is it. Almost right away, one of Brazil's top players lashed out, drew a red card, and was kicked out of the game. What stupidity! He and Brazil were rattled. Even by South American standards, this is a simply amazing beginning. The Chilean plan was very simple, was to rattle him and to, you know, make him do something stupid. And we call it in, in Peru, we say pisar el palito, step on the stick. Pisar el palito? Sí. Okay. Lo hicieron pisar el palito, they, they, they tricked him into stepping on the stick. Romario, who seemed to be boiling for a fight before the game started. Maybe the captain Rojas knew what he was doing by provoking everyone and raising the tension. But that Brazilian red card was quickly followed by a Chilean player getting kicked out for a brutal tackle. And there's a card in the referee's hand. It's a red rug. He's got to go as well. And that's the thing, when you're playing on the edge, trying to instigate, when you're in the heat of the game, it's hard to hold back. And Chile have really shot themselves in the foot. As per usual, Roberto Rojas was playing brilliantly, almost single-handedly keeping Chile in the game. But then things turned from ugly to ridiculous. And Mazzinho is in the clear, and Puebla, oh my word, it's the craziest of own goals! Unbelievable! A Chilean defender flailing at a ball and trying to clear it accidentally kicked it off his own teammate's back right into his own goal. And Brazil have been handed one of the strangest goals on a very strange night for World Cup football. And then towards the end of the first half, with desperation rising for Chile, down by one, Chile was awarded a free kick. But the entire Brazilian team was arguing with the ref about the decision, and one of their players was holding the ball in his hands as he was arguing. Before he could notice, though, a Chilean player ran up to him, took the ball, put it on the ground, and passed it to a team. It really should have been one And now it is. One quick strike, and Chile had punched the ball into what was basically an empty net while everyone was standing around and arguing. Now, that is audacious, that is perhaps sneaky, um, some would say dirty. But it was what Chile felt they needed to do. Más bandidos que los bandidos. This is a war, you know? And in, in, in war, you know, the, the ends justify the means. And at last, the final whistle of one of the most amazing matches that it's ever been my privilege to see. And that was it. After all the tension, the near riots, a 1-1 tie. A mixture of the sublime and the ridiculous in Santiago. Sublime and ridiculous for the announcers, perhaps, but an absolute fiasco for the Chileans. This was the first of two games in which they had to eliminate Brazil. They'd had their home crowd, they'd pushed the limits of FIFA protocol in the tunnel, and still, they'd walked away with only a draw. The crowd felt the frustration as well. After the match, fans started to get rowdy, throwing things onto the field. 
Brazilian reporter Luciano Borges remembers the chaos of that moment and how hard it was to get off the pitch. So the, the Brazilian players, and even me, we have to go protected by the shields of the policemen. I saw, so, I saw some stones flying through, you know, close to my head. And they're very violent. So they're throwing uh, batteries, you know, from radio, batteries. They're throwing batteries, stones. After he escaped the field, Borges went to the locker room to interview some of the players, including the Chilean goalkeeper. And I walked to the dressing room from Chile. And I, and Roja saw me. And he came to me and said, hey, how are you? How are you? Oh, fine. Borges, the reporter, kind of admonished the goalie. You know, you didn't need to pull that stunt at the beginning of the match. It wasn't necessary to raise the tension like that, he told him. And he said, man, we have to use everything we, we can to win Brazil. We have to use everything we can to win against Brazil. For FIFA, though, the Chilean behavior was a problem. Soon after, they stepped in. Rojas had gone too far in the tunnel. The Chilean fans were out of control. FIFA sanctioned the Chileans and mandated that their next game against Venezuela would have to be played in neutral territory in Argentina. In Chile, this only added to the conspiracy theories. The headline of La Cuarta, who was the most popular newspaper at that moment, was viejos sinvergüenzas, that mean old man crooks. And that was what Chilean fans think about the FIFA, that they were all crooks and, uh, and they were acting uh, in favor of Brazil. Everyone knew FIFA had the right to step in and do this. They could overturn a result, mandate a rematch, change the location of a game, even call off a game if it was getting out of control. But still, the Chileans felt especially targeted. There was a sense of, of, um, that FIFA's already decided that Brazil has to go to the World Cup and not us. The next match against Brazil was two weeks later, September 3rd, and it was in Brazil. The Chileans had a massive chip on their shoulder. Jorge Hevia was covering the game for Chilean television and traveled with the team to Rio de Janeiro. The Chilean team bus was escorted from the airport to the hotel by six police officers on motorcycles. It arrived at night with the lights out so no one could see who was inside. Hevia says it was like preparing to go into a war zone. Reporter Danilo Diaz was there as well. The players on the Chilean team had adopted a mantra for what they were preparing to do. Vamos a cabezar piedras, they would say. We're going to slam our heads against the rocks. The next day, they were going to cabezar piedras at the Maracaná. The Maracaná, Rio de Janeiro's legendary stadium perhaps the greatest soccer experience in the world. When it was built for the 1950 World Cup, it was the largest stadium in the world. Brazilians claimed it could fit 200,000 people. The Chileans may have been ready for war, but reporter Luciano Borges says the Brazilians weren't nervous. They were ready to party. It was nothing like, uh, oh, that's a war. Well, the danger of Chile. No. All they had to do was qualify, and to qualify, all they needed was a draw. Everybody went to the stadium that day. There was not any worry. An entire stadium, everyone wearing the same color. All variations on, on the Brazilian flag. You know, like this sea of people. An hour before the game, the stadium is singing. The rhythms of the people singing, you know, like tambourines, little hand drums, the bass drum, boom, boom, 
Boom, boom, boom, boom, boom, boom. Brazilian flags and banners waving across the stands, and like at many games, the crowd is shooting off flares and fireworks. And it just adds to the atmosphere, the smoke and, and you know, and the bright red lights, and, and, and it just adds to the ambiance of, 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 of a game of that magnitude. The Chileans, for their part, were prepared to attempt the impossible. Cabezar piedras. I imagine for, for these guys, it was, it's an intense moment to see that many people and the joy with which they're already celebrating a victory that they just assume is going to come in this almost disdainful way. In the first game, Chile tried to rattle the Brazilians into making mistakes. But this time, things were different. Chile had to be aggressive. They couldn't just tie. They needed to win. Chilean strikers were doing everything they could to press forward. And as usual, Roberto Rojas was playing out of his mind. The first half, Rojas played like hell. He avoided the Brazilian goals with four different opportunities that he made some magical defenses. And then, in the 54th minute... The Brazilian striker pushes the ball past Condor Rojas. I heard someone actually say that, that, that Rojas should have saved it. He'd saved other ones that were much more difficult than this one he, for some reason, he didn't get to. Which seems harsh, considering all that he'd done for the team up until that point. 1-0 Brazil. Chile was despondent, desperate. They would now have to score two goals to pull off the impossible. I think everyone on the Chilean team at that point knows that the dream of, of, uh, of making history and knocking Brazil out of the World Cup is, uh, is not going to be a reality. Unless, that is, something extraordinary happened. While the Chilean players worked the ball on the far side of the field, Rojas stood alone in the mouth of his own goal. Suddenly, a firework, a flare, something flew from the stands right at the Chilean keeper. There's something smoking there. It looks as though something's hit him. Out of the corner of your eye, you see a flare go flying from the stand immediately behind Roberto Rojas' goal. And it goes... The entire stadium, when they see it, there's this... Whoa! He immediately is sort of clouded in smoke and falls down. It appears that he's been hit by this flare. All of a sudden, Condor Rojas is rolling around on the pitch. He appears to be in pain, holding his hands to his face. He tries to get back up, but his teammates force him to stay down. And a couple feet away, a smoking, flaming flare sits on the field. It looks like there's blood there or something down the side of his face. He sort of rolls backwards, and when he comes up, he's bleeding. He's bleeding from his face. He's, he's covering his, his face with his hands. The match is halted. Chilean players start arguing with Brazilian players. Refs start arguing with each other. Fans start booing and jeering and throwing trash onto the field. And what's happening at the stadium at this point is, is madness. I mean, no one really knows what's going on. Certainly concern from the Chilean bench. And they carry him off the side of, uh, of the field and straight into the locker room. Oh, yes. He's being carried off. 
And it's not just Rojas who goes to the locker room. Very quickly, the Chilean coaches and captains talk to each other and decide this is too much. And then the entire Chilean team leaves, uh, abandoning the pitch, and they all go back. Obviously, the Chileans will say, can you abandon the game and start again? The announcers began to speculate about what might come next. Perhaps the Chileans were hoping to force a restart or a rematch. So there's this moment where neither the refs, nor the opposing players, nor the 130,000 fans, nor the millions watching on television, both in Brazil and Chile and worldwide, have any idea what's going on. And the referee, and it's he's off. called it off. He has called the game off, which we can only presume means that Chile refused to reappear. And it's a very hostile reception from the crowd, jeering and whistling all around the stadium. This is what's so crazy about it. You can't walk off the pitch in a game like this. You know, this is not a neighborhood game where you take your ball and go home. This is a FIFA game to qualify for a World Cup. The, the Chileans were going in looking for any reason to, to protest and walk off and uh, demand the game be played again. And when Rojas goes down injured, quite severely injured, I mean, you know, faces covered in blood, um, they, they looked like they'd found their excuse. Yes, it's almost certain now what will happen is the game will be replayed in a neutral country somewhere in South America. You know, the closest country to Brazil, I would think. Uh, which would be where? I, don't, I really don't know. Uh, my geography is not that good. But it may uh, Milton Mias and other reporters followed the Chilean team off the pitch into the locker room, which was filled with the smell of blood. Rojas had a number of cuts on his face. Jorge Hevia was there as well. He would go on to be a very famous broadcaster in Chile, but at the time he was just a young reporter. So he's kind of milling out side, you know, milling around outside the locker room, and uh, and he stumbles into uh, into Pele. You know, just the greatest player in the history of the sport. So the young reporter starts talking to the soccer legend, Pele. He goes right up to him with a microphone in his hand and he says, what do you think about what we just saw? Pele says, that's metapio. Metapio is, uh, is iodine. So he's saying that the, the red um, stuff on El Condor's face is iodine. It's not actually blood. That's fake. That's not real. Basically, the first person to go on the record as doubting what, you know, 130,000 people had just seen with their own eyes was Pele. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told. 
So I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The second match between Chile and Brazil had been called off. There wasn't really a choice given Chile's refusal to finish playing. The fans filed out of the Maracanã and the media huddled around the Chilean team in the locker room. After getting stitched up, El Condor gave a few television interviews that were broadcast live back in his home country. He's got a very subdued tone. He, he, he looks like he's been through, through hell. Chileans watching at home, they saw um, El Condor giving this, this interview, you know, um, injured, his head wrapped. I mean, he clearly was bleeding. Um, so there's no question about that. Everybody believed that Rojas was really hit and that the players did the right thing, uh, leaving the field. Uh, I think there was no room for doubt. Whatever had happened with Rojas, the act of walking off the field had bound the entire team to their captain. And that action by the team bound them to the entire country. El Condor was a, a martyr, a martyr to the cause. People were outraged. And the feeling was of, here's our hero, you know, who's, you know, put his body on the line, has been injured, and, um, and the Brazilians are going to get away with it. And for Chileans watching from home, what should come next felt obvious. The right thing will be that uh, Brazil will be disqualifying and Chile were promote to the World Cup directly. Tensions immediately mounted between soccer fans and, in a way, between the two countries. That night there were protests in, in Santiago in front of the Brazilian embassy and uh, very rowdy protests. The employees of the embassy who had gathered to watch the game were caught inside as the protests grew and grew. The news media descended. There are reports that Chileans attacked anyone walking by who happened to look Brazilian. Things were spiraling. You know, in, in, the, in the, this fit of, of nationalism that was an extension of, of the game itself. Pele had been the first to cast suspicion about the blood streaming down Roberto Rojas's face. But he wasn't the only one. In the hours after the match, reporters who were at the Maracaná started to ask questions because they knew what this Chilean team was willing to do to win. And all of a sudden, the guy was, uh, was with blood. We quite did not understand what happened. Pele had said the blood looked fake. For others, they wondered why there would be any blood at all. It was red with blood. I remember watching that and say, it's funny because uh, I thought that this kind of a rockets, they will burn the guy, not cut the guy. Yeah, yeah. Certain people started wondering, uh, could a flare really cut you? Wouldn't it be more logical for there to be a burn? And if the flare had landed behind you, why would the cut be on the front of his face? Reporter Milton Mias was one of the first to voice his doubts. He went over to Rojas and said, Roberto, tell me the truth. Milton, 
It's exactly how you saw it, said Rojas. The problem was, very few people could say what they saw. The journalists, the fans, the players were all unsure and were furiously trying to piece things together. When the incident happened, all the television cameras were pointed in the wrong direction. The action was on the other end of the field. They didn't get the shot. There was no video proof of what happened. But there were news photographers at the game. It quickly became apparent that this was the only place there would be a record of the incident. So of all the people in the stadium, nobody could prove one way or another what happened except the photographers. The photographers immediately started huddling together to find out what each other had. Paulo Teixeira was a photographer at that game, taking photos of the match alongside several other newspaper cameramen. So I just saw it uh, fly over and fall behind the, behind the Rojas. They were standing at field level, watching the action. Paulo saw the flare, what he calls the Bengala, fly out of the stands. But he saw it with the naked eye. His camera was in his hand. When you see the Bengala coming, you're not looking at the through it camera. So he didn't take the shot. Next to Paulo, though, was another photographer, Ricardo Alfieri. He was working for a Japanese soccer magazine. He turns to Ricardo and says, hey, did you get the shot? Ricardo looks at Paulo and says, Me dijo, tengo cinco tomas. Tengo cinco tomas. Tengo cinco tomas, he says. Cinco tomas, five shots. Ricardo happened to see the flare through his camera and had snapped his shutter five times. He knew he had the shots. Somewhere in those cinco tomas was the real story of what had just happened. I think it's no exaggeration to say that at that moment, those five pictures were the you know, five most valuable photographs in South America. So what's, what's happened next? Everybody around Ricardo, okay? Every TV reporter, for him to explain, was an, an amazing, fantastic atmosphere. After reporters swarmed Ricardo to ask about the photos, Paulo Teixeira took control, effectively becoming Ricardo's business manager. I said, Ricardo, listen to me. Let me handle this. You are a photographer. I'm a photographer and a businessman. Let me, let me handle this. Paulo knew he could sell the photos to a Brazilian outlet that night. There was a World Cup qualification in the balance, sitting inside that camera. And so what happens over the next couple of hours is this kind of madcap on again, off again, attempted to sell these pictures for the most money possible. Immediately, several newspapers came out of the woodwork, inquiring about exclusive rights to develop and publish the photos. And I remember Paulo said to me something that, that was very funny to me. He's like, for, for a few hours, he got to live like a king because everybody wanted those pictures. So he described writing in a limousine, you know, carrying this, this roll of film in his hand. Paulo helped Ricardo set his price, $5,000. Which, to me, doesn't seem like a lot of money now, but um, Paulo assured me that that was an extravagant amount of money. Eventually, it came down to two papers, both Brazilian. One of them, Global, locked in the price and handed him the $5,000 right on the spot. He gave 60% to Ricardo Alfieri, the photographer, and kept the other 40% for himself. By this point, it was late on a Sunday night. The woman who ran Global's photo lab had already gone home. So they had to wake her up, send a cab to go get her, bring her to the studio, have her, like, you know, warm up the machines, develop the pictures. But these were the most important photos Global's sports page had ever run, and they would appear in the next morning's paper. So what you see in the photo is, uh, is a plume of smoke and a bright yellow flare about a yard and a half behind... The photos were published in a huge full-color spread on the front of Global's sports section. 
The first photo was the one that provided the proof that everyone was looking for. It's it's obvious from this image that the flare lands behind behind Rojas. Yes, there was a flare sent onto the field from the stands. Yes, it had landed near El Condor, but it did not hit him. He was standing up when the flare landed in the goalie box. And in the series of photographs that come next, Rojas sort of tosses himself into the smoke, um, which sort of makes it makes it very much harder to see exactly what's happening. But there's no there's no question that that first image demonstrates quite clearly that he didn't that he didn't get hit. The Cinco Tomas propelled the story to a new level. Every newspaper, every television show, every conversation in every cafe was about what Rojas had done. Brazilian police even tracked down the woman who had shot the flare. She was mobbed by reporters, gave her side. She'd go on to be a minor celebrity, actually, pose for the cover of Brazilian Playboy. But after being interrogated by the cops for half a day, eventually they determined it was an accident and she was released. But the hard photographic evidence didn't necessarily change the way Chilean fans felt. Daniel Matamala. Chilean were emotionally so attached to a narrative in which we were the victims. So everybody tried to find an alternative explanation. Uh, maybe it was a piece of the flare that hits the ground and uh, go to Rojas head. Uh, people were saying this kind of things in order to protect this narrative. And we are innocent victims of a conspiracy against us. Attempts by the media to clear up the story didn't help much. In fact, many of them continued to fuel the nationalism and conspiracy theories. Rojas's teammates denied knowing what had happened, but they stood by their captain and the decision to leave the field under hostile conditions at the Maracaná. Many Chileans refused to believe that their captain had actually cheated. Others praised El Condor for cheating and trying to find a way to win. You know, when you believe a narrative, and it's so emotional because it's your country, it's your country. So it's very hard to say, well, maybe we were wrong. Maybe we are not the victims. Maybe we are the crooks. In this moment, it was pure emotion. Nothing was logical. Everything felt crooked. The only thing I remember is the light to the side of me. And then, next thing I remember, I was in the locker room, lying on a table, surrounded by my teammates. For his part, in the days after returning to Chile with a bandage still on his head, Rojas gave a few more interviews. But those didn't really help. Reporters started to ask him point blank about the accusations that this was all a hoax. No, I don't think it's a hoax. More than two million people saw the match, right? There's your proof, what they saw. So what people are saying, I don't think there's anything to that. And now people are talking about me as if I'm guilty of something. Every interview, his story would shift and slip around. Even Rojas uh, very quickly said that, well, maybe I wasn't hit uh, directly uh, by the flare. I, I don't know exactly what happened. So it was, that, it was very confusing. Somehow, the photos created more questions than answers, including, still, where exactly did that blood come from? It looks like there's blood there or something down the side of his face. A week after the match, FIFA stepped in. 
they sanctioned Chile, the team, not for what Rojas had done, but for leaving the pitch and refusing to come back and finish the game. Chile was out, which automatically sent Brazil to the World Cup. At the same time, they launched an investigation into Rojas' behavior. A few weeks later, they called Rojas to FIFA headquarters in Zurich. Just as El Condor was going into the hearing, reporters asked him what he was thinking. He replied, Hoy atajo un penal. Today I'm going to save a penalty. But Rojas was not able to save this one. FIFA had reviewed the evidence and they issued their ruling. Rojas was banned from soccer for life. They didn't find conclusive proof that his teammates were part of the plot, but even so, FIFA banned Chile from the next World Cup as well. Reporters in Zurich swarmed Rojas. He was still being evasive. Eventually, one reporter, trying anything to get a straight answer, asked Rojas whether he had psychological problems. Did he think the way he was acting was normal? I'm not sure. I feel normal. I've been dealing with this situation, and it has felt like it's gotten away from me. And here I am. I can't tell you if I'm normal or abnormal. I'm trying to be as normal as possible. It wasn't until he had returned to Chile that Rojas finally gave the full story in an interview on Chilean television. It's with a news program. He's in a dark studio, wearing a black suit and tie. The cut on his forehead has healed. That interview is just, is, is kind of breathtaking. You, what you see is someone who's been defeated. What you see is somebody who's, who realizes that, that, that now that he's got no way out. And to watch him, you know, this very proud man, just kind of come clean almost against his will is just, is just astonishing. So we got it in our heads that we were going to get the result we wanted, at all costs. We talked about it once, and that's all. It wasn't even analyzed in detail. No, it was just there, bouncing around in our heads, as we say. Nevertheless, Condor claimed that he'd acted alone in faking his injury. Rojas walked the interviewer and the Chileans watching from home through the entire incident, moment by moment. I turn my head left, and I see a light falling. But there was a lot of smoke, and, and that was when, in a matter of seconds, I said, well, here it is. The here was his opportunity his chance to disrupt the match. It all happened in a thousandth of a second. If I had thought about it for a minute, maybe, I would have done nothing. But in an instant, I was wrapped up in something that everyone believed had actually happened. When he was pushed on exactly what he had done when the flare hit the ground, Rojas finally admitted that as he fell towards the smoke, he had cut himself. How? with a razor blade that he'd hidden inside his sock. Well, I went onto the field with it, but I wasn't worried about what I had to do with it. In the first half, I forgot about it. If you remember, I was playing one of the best matches of my life. He was playing such a great game. It almost feels like like the, the telltale heart or something, you know, like this like ticking thing 
that's there that's 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 it's always present even when he's making these outrageous saves and and um and keeping his team single-handedly in the game there's always this other thing that's there and it's the it's the razor blade once his team had gone down by a goal Condor was desperate the razor blade became his only way out everything kept steering himself back to the presence of that little uh razor blade um which which in the end would change the course of the game and of course the course of his life and the course of, you know, Chilean soccer's trajectory. That trajectory was one of heartbreak for Chilean soccer. They'd been banned from two World Cups. The, the national team was banned also for the next uh, World Cup. And it was the end of a dream for a complete generation of very talented players that uh, never had a shot to play the World Cup. But I think it has a positive side too. I think it was the end of an era of madness of uh, thinking that to win in soccer, we have to cheat or to take advantage. This mentality was uh, very toxic and very negative to Chilean society. Uh, And I think that in in this way, we kind of learn a lesson. Roberto Rojas is still alive, though he's battled serious health issues over the years. He lives in Brazil now, of all places, where he coaches soccer. He's spoken from time to time about the incident, but his story still changes. Conspiracy theories still exist. I think that it's impossible to think that he was alone. I think that obviously he was a leader. He was a leader of the team. Um, But who else was involved? Uh, That's very, very hard to, to say. And the only way to really prove is that the players that were part of the conspiracy admitted it. And I think they don't have many incentives to do it. It's difficult to know, and maybe we will never know. What Rojas did seems impossible. Impossibly audacious, impossible to think it would lead Chile to beat Brazil, impossible that it would have such ripple effects. Rojas himself saw the impossible in that moment. And that was when I decided something had to be steering me internally. At that moment, in a matter of seconds, lead me to take advantage of a moment that felt impossible. I do think about this a lot, man, because... um, Everything about being a professional athlete at that level is a series of negotiations with what's possible. And everyone's saying, like, that'll never happen, and then it does. You start out playing soccer in your neighborhood, in your, you know, little town, and you're like, I want to play professionally, and everyone's like, nah, it'll never happen, and it does. I want to be on the national team. It'll never happen, and it does. I want to be the captain of my national team. And everyone's like, it'll never happen, and it does. I want to lead my team to the World Cup by defeating Brazil and knocking them out, you know? It's like everything that they've done, that a guy like Rojas has done, has been a series of impossible acts. And so if if you're raised in that mindset, why wouldn't you attempt this act that is on the surface, you know, I say dumb, but he might say impossible. Um, And there it is.
This story was reported and produced by me, Jody Avergan. This episode was mixed by 30 for 30's Mitra Kaboli. Special thanks to Daniel Alarcón and the whole team at Radio Ambulante. They reported a Spanish-language version of the Roberto Rojas story with lots more information. It's called Alias El Condor. If you know Spanish, check it out. It's really excellent. You can find Radio Ambulante wherever you get your podcasts. Keith Romer helped edit this piece. We got production assistance from Lee Hernandez, Sam Lee, Cristobal Correa, and Martin Cruz. Megan Geyer helped with archival research. Special thanks to Ryan Nantel, Jenna Anthony, and Rose Eveleth. Fact-checking was by Roger Jackson. The voice of Roberto Rojas was Peter Russo of The Story Pirates. The series editors for 30 for 30 podcasts are me, Jody Avergan, and Aaron Leiden. The 30 for 30 podcast team also includes Andrew Mambo and Meredith Hodenot. Special thanks to 30 for 30's Kath Sankey, Jennifer Thorpe, Eve Wolf, and Riley Bloom for production support. Executive producers for 30 for 30 are Connor Shell, Rob King, and Libby Geist. Our development team is Adam Newhouse and Trevor Gill. The ESPN audio team includes Trog Keller, Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannisini, and Ryan Graner. Our theme music was composed by Rishi K. Shearway of the Song Exploder podcast. On our website, there's a transcript of this and all of our episodes and lots more. Check it out, 30for30podcast.com. My name is Jody Avergan. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30. Coming up on the next episode of 30 for 30. God, he said, that would make the Astrodome look like a peanut dome. And he said, it would be the greatest building in history. By God, we'll build that sucker. And I knew the name Superdome would be perfect. The only two names I considered were Ultradome or Superdome. <laughs> <laughs>